Welcome to Students Over Systems, a podcast that celebrates education freedom. I'm your host, Jenny Gentles. At Students Over Systems, we talk with the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. And on today's episode, we're focusing on both education history and the next frontier in school choice. For this important conversation about education freedoms past and future, we're joined by Gerard Robinson, Professor of Practice in Public Policy and Law at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. He previously served as Executive Director of the Center for Advancing Opportunity, Florida's Commissioner of Education, Virginia's Secretary of Education, and President of Black Alliance for Educational Options. Professor Robinson, thank you so much for joining us. Jenny, it's always good to join you. So thanks for having me. Well, I am excited to be talking to my friend today and to be talking to somebody who's been in the school choice education freedom world really since the beginning uh, for decades. You um, co-authored or co-edited a book called Education Savings Accounts, The New Frontier in School Choice back in 2017. And that was when ESAs were but a glint in the eye uh, and we're in a different place today. But before we delve into education savings accounts, ESAs and the new frontier, let's go back to the beginning and talk about school choice in Milwaukee. Uh, what's the origin story of this school choice movement that we're seeing uh, expand so broadly today? Great question. Well, behind me is a book written by Dr. Howard Fuller. And I have that book behind me not only because he's a mentor of me personally and professionally, but because he helped usher in the modern school choice movement. So let's think about Milwaukee in the 1980s. Uh, it was, it still is, but then a larger urban city, uh, pretty large school system, over 100,000 students. Uh, many of the students were frankly not being served well by the traditional public school system. Dropouts were high. Uh, the students who in fact earned a high school diploma were uh, matriculated into the two-year or four-year system, had to take a ton of remedial courses. And frankly, you also had issues of violence and homelessness in the city. And so Dr. Howard Fuller, along with uh, uh, Polly Williams, who was a state representative, um, you know, they said, we've got to do something radically different than what we have now. And so Polly Williams, let's, let's put in context, this is the 1980s. Uh, she's an African-American woman. She's a Democrat. She had been a state level uh, director for Jesse Jackson when he ran for uh, president in 84 and 88. So she is well uh, rooted in the Democratic tradition. She reached over the aisle. And I uh, went to Tommy Thompson, a Republican governor from a rural part of the state or in Wisconsin. If you're not in Milwaukee, everything else is pretty rural. And she said, listen, Milwaukee is the number one city in your state, big economic engine. But how are you going to have a big um, economic engine in the city where achievement's not great? Why don't we experiment with vouchers? And he said, well, why would I want to do that? Well, for two reasons. Number one, there are a lot of families and schools who are looking for an alternative. That's number one. And number two, if we can make it work in a big urban city like Milwaukee, other cities will be interested. Now, the idea of vouchers, we know it's got its intellectual roots with Milton Friedman going all the way back to 1955 in a book chapter he published on education and government. But they decided to take that idea. They put it before the uh, legislature in Wisconsin uh, and it passed and it became uh, the beginning of what has been a, a, you know, 25 year plus system. But that's how I got started. 
Well, you were, I believe, researching these programs from the from the get go, and then you were advocating for them in your role as president of the Black Alliance for Educational Options, or or BAO. What happened next when when this happened in in Milwaukee? It got some attention. I I, I remember back in my youth uh, being aware of it, um, even though I lived far far away from from Wisconsin. Um, how did the idea start spreading to other states and places? Well, the story I'm going to tell you about Milwaukee and how it spread is pretty similar to what we hear today whenever you have a new private school choice program. So initially, uh, in the early years, the program was only open to non-religious schools. Now, part of it was a compromise the legislators had to make. They said our state constitution will not allow us to use public money for a religious school. And so in the early years, it didn't happen. Well, there were parents and others who said, I like the education I'm getting now, but what's wrong with me having access to a faith-based education? So the legislature said, tell you what, let's go ahead and, and amend the, uh, the law. And they did. Governor signed the bill. And for the first time, you had religious schools. Well, you can imagine they were sued by a number of people. NAACP, People for the American Way, the Wisconsin Education Association, and others. Long story short, by the time the decision went to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled that, in fact, the program was constitutional, that it did not violate the uh, Equal Protection Clause in terms of race that some uh, advocates were making, uh, that it did not offend uh, the state the uh, state constitution in Wisconsin in terms of public money going to private schools, and there were no federal challenges. And so if you look at a map, all of a sudden you see enrollment beginning to really move forward. And so other Polly Williams across the country said, well, what about us? And so then you get a, uh, a Cleveland, Ohio, where Fannie Williams, the African-American woman elected as a city council member, she does the same thing. She moves her vouchers in Wisconsin, but the, not Wisconsin, in Cleveland, Ohio. It's the Cleveland, Ohio case that becomes Zelman when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 2020, uh, 2002 that vouchers, in fact, are constitutional in that area, opening up the door. Well, from um, Ohio, or, or particularly in um, Cleveland, you then have New Orleans, you have Washington, D.C., and then you have other states who are saying, well, maybe we don't want a citywide voucher. Maybe we want a statewide tax credit program uh, funded differently, but still giving families an opportunity to send their children to where they want to go. And so you've got a state like Florida, uh, largest tax credit program in the country, where over 100,000 students are now involved. So from Milwaukee, and every single program got challenged, including the voucher program in Florida, which their court actually said was unconstitutional, so they had to move away from that and move the tax credit. So every place has been challenged, including to 2023. But they've won. They've won, and uh, and the idea continued to expand to, to other states, and the eligibility continued to expand. So we've been talking about these programs initially being designed to serve low-income families and in areas where, obviously, they deserve to be freed from the failing schools um, that they've been then trapped in. What sort of eligibility expansions did we see in those early years? So Milwaukee, uh, it was 185% of the poverty level. So in the early years for a family of four, you were talking about an income under $30,000. That program, in fact, lifted the bar uh, close to 300% of poverty level. And you want to know why? Because I actually met and was at meetings with families who said, I decided to postpone getting married because we would have a dual income household and all of a sudden I would over, I mean, I wouldn't qualify because I would have maybe $2,000 over. 
there were families who said, I didn't take a raise at my job. I needed it, but I didn't want to take the raise because I would have gone over the cap. And so they raised it, you know, 300%. You now have universal choice programs, same principles as what some would call social uh, justice-based. These are liberty-based. And these are saying that families across the board should have an opportunity to use uh, you know, either a portion of their tax dollars or donations to tax credit funds to do it. The universal school choice uh, movement uh, is growing uh, at a faster rate than what we would call the means-tested program. Uh, I'm a supporter of both. You and I know we have friends who support one versus the other. And what I tell people is I'm not interested in the left wing or the right wing debates of things to families and children so they can fly away from schools that don't work and land in safe places that do. Well, and we also had expansions into uh, students with disabilities before we we got to that universal stage. There was this recognition that the students who were being failed the most by the public school system were these low-income students trapped in um, historically failing schools and the students with disabilities who, despite federal guarantees of uh, FAPE, or their rights yep. that people always claim that the system actually was not uh, giving them the accommodations and um, and interventions and services that they needed. And so they needed to go find um, better services elsewhere and a better education elsewhere. And so we had that, that expansion in Florida and some of the other places that you've been talking about. Okay, so we started over 30 years ago in Milwaukee with these programs. Some people think that Corey G. Angelis uh, created School Choice. And here on Students Over Systems, we like to remind people, no, we've been doing this for a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, over half the states have some kind of program at this point. This universal thing though, that is, that is pretty new. So I'm hearing you say you're open to universal eligibility. What, what do you think the benefits are of that liberty-based model? Well, in terms of my own personal journey, uh, in 2010 is when I made the switch to support universal choice. Now, my heart uh, and work and mind will always be with working class and um, lower income families who need this. Uh, but for me, expanding the opportunity to all families did two things. Uh, number one, it minimized the questions about we're making this a class warfare issue. And then number two, it acknowledged the fact that you have families uh, who aren't rich. Uh, who may have four or five children, who make $100,000, but for a family of four, they need support as well. And so when I think about uh, the state of Georgia, uh, I was a bail president at the time. In Georgia, uh, we played a role in, uh, in helping create a special needs scholarship in that state. And I can tell you, having testified before the committee, but also having gone visit schools that have special needs students, it was a game changer for the students and the families. And guess what? There were public school officials who said, we couldn't serve them, but we wanted to provide them with another opportunity. So my own uh, growth on that happened, you know, 10,000 moving forward. Uh, universal is really new, but when you think about it, the idea of free universal education has been around a very long time, going back to after the Civil War, but that's only been in the public school sector. Now we're simply saying the same way that we treat public school students with the opportunity to have faith free education, having access and appropriate. Why can't we do more in the private sector? There are surely dynamics in terms of regulations of how much we can and can't do uh, with private schools. But this is a very interesting experiment. And 50 years from now, uh, someone's going to look back and say, why did it take them so long to get to Universal? And you and I know, having been in the trenches for 30 years, it was a slog. And some people still aren't there. And I get it and respect that. 
Right. Well, in the state where you and I live, Virginia, people aren't there yet, which baffles me. I, I think that a lot of people here in Virginia just don't recognize how far behind we are compared to other states as far as offering education freedom. People in Virginia do recognize that parents are frustrated with public schools, though. There was a whole election in 2021 that reflected that, um, and the frustrations continue today. Uh, that's not a, a something that's unique to our state, though. And Gallup polling, August of 2023, found that only 36% of U.S. adults are satisfied with the quality of K-12 education. And this is uh, basically an all-time low. And so we've got school closures, we've got learning loss that are driving that public dissatisfaction. We talk about that a lot here on the on the podcast. Um, and we have a, a broader support for school choice as a result of those things. All parents and uh, were impacted by school closures. All community members are concerned about learning loss. These are realities that we have to deal with. Um, so the political dynamics are are different. Do you think that all of that is going to drive additional uh, expansion of universal school choice, or is you know twenty twenty three kind of going to be our high point as far as the the gains that we've made this year? No, I think there are more to come. You're absolutely correct. So we published the book in, uh, in 2017, but we were having conversations about uh, education savings accounts as early as 2015. Uh, you had uh, uh, people, Heritage Foundation and others uh, who were talking about the idea. And we said, well, why don't we get together a group of scholars, advocates, uh, one journalist from uh, the Wall Street Journal to come and put this together? And initially people laughed because they said there's no way people are going to believe that you can actually use uh, either a debit card or something like it to make these transactions. And of course, poor people can't do it. Even though poor people, millions in the United States use debit cards monthly to make all kinds of transactions for their living. But somehow when in school, they can't make it happen. So with the breakout of 2023, a lot of that, I believe, being driven uh, by COVID, Calls and emails that I received from friends of mine who said, Gerard, St. Catherine's across the street is open. My public school is closed. St. Catherine's, I know it's, it's much lower in terms of per people funding than my kids getting to my school. Why are they closed? And the calls and the questions began to come. And so you had people who still believe strongly in public schools, as I do as well, who said, I'm not against public schools. I'm just for different options. And so state legislatures began to move forward. Now, talking about our home state of Virginia, one of the small, uh, what I would call a slow boil movers right now are micro schools. I had an opportunity to have dinner in Richmond uh, several weeks ago, Heather McDonald uh, from FEE uh, was here. And uh, I talked to a couple of former educators in from the Richmond public school system and other systems who woke up and said, hey, we wanna start a micro school for our children. And another parent said, hey, I agree. And the next thing you know, you had more than 50 parents. That movement, when we look 50 years ahead, um, ahead, someone's going to say, why did it take you so long for micro? So in a very unique way, and in no way do I want to belittle the tragedy, the death, the loss of life, loved ones and others that came along with COVID. Uh, one of the spillover effects is that it galvanized people to ask different questions. One of the favorite, my favorite things about the microschool movement is that it is an opportunity for these educators, for these innovative educators, or just even these traditional educators who are like, I don't, I don't like what's going on in this uh, broader K-12 system. 
I want to go back to the way we used to do it with pencils and without text, or I want to go forward to this totally new and innovative way, or I just want a small environment mm -hmm. um, that is uh, really about the relationship between the educator and the student and not the system. And mm -hmm. they're doing it. So I love, I love hearing stories of these, these educators who are thriving in this new micro school movement. All right. So we talked about, about the history of the school choice movement and uh, granted it's, you know, decades long. So there's lots more to discuss um, in, in future episodes. Uh, we talked about the new frontier that you predicted back in 2017 in your book that is now here and has arrived. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the debates and the discussions within the school choice movement. Um, you are kind of part of a, an ongoing conversation about those debates. Um, there's a fellow, John Kristoff, from an organization called EdChoice, and we have interviewed his boss here at Student Service Systems, uh, who wrote The Three Languages of School Choice. And this seems to be uh, resonating with you. Can you tell us about the three languages and some of those debates within the movement? No, absolutely. And so John is taking uh, a, a theory uh, from another scholar, who talked about political languages and how we talk. And so we say school choice. Uh, there's a language that libertarians use. Uh, there's a language that conservatives use. And there's a language that liberals use. And so liberals, and I'm generalizing here, liberals will say uh, it's taking money away from public education. Uh, conservatives will say it's a way of bringing competition into the marketplace. And libertarians will say, well, the government shouldn't be that involved in education, but if they are to be, here are ways to make it happen. Even though we're talking about giving parents an opportunity to put their children in schools that work. And so in his uh, report, he's, uh, he's got a lot of really good examples on how people kind of maneuver the language and that we, for example, right of center, we tend to talk conservative and maybe libertarian, but we often don't think about how liberals or left of center people think about it. Now we do, but when he really laid it out, he says, no, you really don't. And he gives a lot of examples. So what I think is helpful for, for me, thinking back to 1991, uh, the first time I heard about a voucher, uh, we were trying to put a voucher uh, initiative on the ballot in California. We were successful in getting it on the ballot and it was successfully defeated 70 to 30 in 1993. Uh, arguments then are similar arguments to now, but he's providing at least a framework for us to think how do we understand how love language power dimension opportunity so um it's one i'd recommend to read because it made me stop and pause and you know as we go into brown v board of education turning 70 next year and knowing that we did have an earlier freedom of choice movement in the south virginia being a leader in it uh that was what i call a fear-based freedom of choice fear against integration fear against uh modernization fear against uh the government and what would happen well ultimately put that to an end but there was a time that happened and so as we go into uh, brown at 70 we should at least learn how to talk across the aisles not just one aisle okay well our country's not very good at talking across aisles or as as, as you put it like we've moved from uh, um, holding up signs when we're trying to communicate what we believe in to uh, using our thumbs to do that, which has definitely had a, a I'd say negative impact on, on discourse and, and debate. And you've said that where we have this new problem, school choice is morphing into a clickbait for debate. What do you mean clickbait for debate? You say something outlandish 
that maybe you don't believe, but it's enough for me to click. So one is, if you don't like school choice, school choice will lead to a racial Armageddon. Oh, I believe that. And so you click it. Now, that was said decades ago by Jonathan Kozel and others. But it's being, I got it. Now, if someone said school choice will underfund public schools, eh, I'm less likely to kick. But on our side of the fence, public schools are, in, are, are indoctrinating students to a point where they'll be mentally dead in 10 years. Oh, I think I'm going to click there. Versus saying we need a better education. And so I think people kept clicking on to the, whether things going to be a fight, uh, when in fact, there's actually really good research or really good ideas on both sides of the uh, fence. But I just think we're interested in the clicks and not the clicks, the clicks of us coming together to talk to make this stuff work. And it's great for uh, building up your, um, uh, your X count or, or your LinkedIn count. But I think it's, you know, we're becoming what we said, the public school uh, uh, establishment or system who would argue against us. We're now becoming like them, often tribalized or cannibalized amongst ourselves, but beginning to treat them the way they used to treat us. Okay, so I hear you proposing a solution uh, in what you've written about this. You said we need more conversations. We need to be debating the merits of school choice. Um, that's healthy. So that would be debating with opponents as well as within the movement. Is that what you're proposing? Absolutely. I mean, when you think about the fact that we've had tremendous growth in school choice legislation in the last three years, just superseding the previous 15, well, when you get that kind of power, you get excited. And you say, wow, we've arrived, we've won. And well, we may have won this battle, but all of a sudden we become our own best enemies. So should it only be universal? And if so, what are the problems? Should we not at least consider whether or not we want to have a means tested for the first three? Oh, no, we can't. Or we should get rid of all regulations. Well, maybe not all regulations. Yes, all regulations. So we're now fighting and canonizing ourselves. And, you know, those kind of things come. You know, Newt Gingrich has a, uh, a book, or at least a new book, uh, focused on what it was like in the Republican Revolution. And he says, you have to remember that the Democrats have been in party or in control of Congress, at least the House, for 40 years. And when we won, we were now in control. Wow, everything we fought for, we got. And then he realized now it's time to govern, it's time to lead, and it's time to build consensus. And one of the hardest groups to build consensus with were the new winners because they won. And with it comes the excitement. So I think we're having our own um, moment that's pretty similar. We've won, but now we're fighting each other. Just my two cents. All right. Well, I, I know that sometimes when I'm talking to young adults who actually benefited from school choice and now have uh, gone on to college and or have graduated from college and are advocating for school choice, they look around and see the fighting and they're like, I don't get it. Like, this is such a no brainer. Look at my life. Look at the trajectory that it's put me on. Like, why aren't we all just agreeing and, and getting along? And I do have to point out the fact that the those of us and even you know people before me who were part of this movement, we didn't like we weren't kind of like go along to get along, right. you know, like let's let's just like go with the flow kind of people. We were kind of contrary, difficult, mm -hmm. ask a lot of questions, you know poke at the at the system um, and lead to change sort of people. So I think, I mean, what do you think about that? That like within the movement, it's it's not a, it's not a kumbaya hold hands kind of bunch. It's a like, let's shake things up and, and question things sort of bunch. 
You're absolutely yeah. correct. So let's go back to Milwaukee. Uh, from day one, Dr. Fuller was uh, social justice uh, means tested. And he stayed uh, that way until today, minus you know a few ups. But even back then in Milwaukee, you had a group of Republicans who supported the bill who said, I really want it to be universal because I wanted to also help families who make more than 185% of poverty. But a deal was cut and we had to make that happen. But I can tell you every year that there was tension, particularly in Wisconsin, because you have to renew that budget uh, every cycle, there was tension between means tested and universal. And the compromise was, okay, then we'll go 250 and then we'll go 300. So you had that fight. And then you had the dynamics of race and ethnicity. Um, you had African-Americans in cities like in Milwaukee or D.C. who were the majority for a very long time. You had an influx of Hispanic students and you also had gentrification. So all of a sudden the question was, well, who's in charge of the movement? Whose kids will benefit? I was here first. I thought we were for all kids. So you had the dynamic of city changes. And then you had the research dynamic. You had professors uh, from across the country. I mean, you don't have uh, what we know today in terms of research without a Patrick Wolf, or I should say Dr. Patrick Wolf, or Dr. Jay Green and the team at uh, the University of Arkansas, or Dr. Paul Peterson at Harvard. Even amongst the academics, all trained political science, sociology, others, there were even debates on methodology. I mean, how do we, I mean, how many students, where do we draw it? So at no point was this ever kumbaya. It's just that where we are right now is just, you know, more public uh, fighting that maybe sometimes was behind the scene. All right. Well, Gerard, I am totally in favor of more conversations and let's have those in person. Um, you're welcome to host them at, uh, at uh, <laughs> University of Virginia. Exactly. <laughs> I would be happy to attend. All right. So our last question as we wrap up today, what is the myth about education freedom that bothers you the most and that you want to dispel today? That uh, parents who didn't go to college, who live in cities, or parents who didn't go to college who live in rural areas. And I'm gonna just use a politically incorrect term because this is what people are basically saying. They're basically saying they're too stupid to know how to select a school that works for their children. That is a myth. As someone who spent more time with thousands of families in several states who worked with them, many of them were not college graduates, in fact, excited to see their children graduate we're able to navigate the system with some level of sophistication that would actually shock some of the elites who believe they just aren't smart enough. And I have to remind the elites, well, these are the same parents who you cheer for when they get a voucher for Section 8 housing, the same families you cheer for when they get a uh, electronic debit card or a voucher in electronic sense to buy food. These are the same parents who didn't go to college, but were smart enough to navigate the political uh, system, decide to vote for candidate A versus B. And these are the same parents who you cheer when they decide to take to the streets uh, to show their righteous indignation, either against police brutality or something else. And yet somehow their sophistication is stalled. They're somehow not that sophisticated. They're somehow not that politically engaged or politically duped when it comes time to talk about vouchers, charters, tax credits and ESAs. That myth has been around a long time and may uh, proceed, I mean, you know, go ahead of me, but that's one that I just say it's laughable. 
Right. It's absolutely wrong. Gerard, thank you so much for all that you've done over many years in your role at Bayo as leader in both Virginia and Florida. So many positions to to name, and um, and just your your support of everyone in the in the movement. Like you're you're there as a as a thought leader and as a and as a friend and as an advocate always for parents and kids. So thank you for talking with us today, and thank you for all that you're doing. And thank you for your leadership in this movement as well. All right. Well, we hope that listeners found today's conversation informative and encouraging. If you enjoyed this episode of Student Server Systems, please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to share this episode with your friends. To learn more about the work of the IWF Education Freedom Center, please visit iwf.org EFC. Thank you for listening to Students Over Systems. Until next time, keep celebrating education freedom and brighter futures.